This class is part of the Lessons in Tanya project. More classes available at LessonsInTanya.com Major funding for this Tanya class is provided by the Mettel Corporation. Additional funding is provided by Tanya students like you. Lessons in Tanya The Tanya of Rabbi Schneir Zalman of Liadi Taught by Rabbi Ben-Zion Krasniansky Tanya's text elucidated by Rabbi Yosef Weinberg This week is the uh, yard site, Thursday, Wednesday night, Thursday is the yard site of Alter Rebbe the 205th yard site. So it's a very auspicious time to be learning the Tanya. The Alter Rebbe considered himself a grandchild, spiritual grandchild of the Baal Shem Tov. He once told Baruch Mezhubuz, you're a physical grandchild, but I am a spiritual grandchild. He's so much older that his children, Alter Rebbe's children, would refer to the Baal Shem Tov as Elter Zayde, great-grandfather. So it was literal. He would call him Zayde, the grandfather. The only time the Alter Rebbe saw the Baal Shem Tov, because they were, his parents were under strict instructions. His parents, Rabbi Baruch and Rivka, were in the strict instructions, were devout Hasidim of the Baal Shem Tev, and were part of the hidden group of tzaddikim, hidden tzaddikim, were had on the strict instructions not to divulge to their son, the Alter Rebbe, not to tell them that they are Hasidim. He has to discover Hasidus on his own, very much in tune with the whole Chabad approach, that the personal participation not so much to rely on the Rebbe, but you have to, your personal participation, you have to discover it on your own. Yiddishkeit is something you have to discover on your own. Hasidus is something you have to discover on your own, not do it because your parents are doing it, or your grandparents, or your community. It has to be yours, you have to own it. And also, because the Alter Rebbe had a connection to Rabbi Dovber, the Magad Mizrich, he was his Rebbe. So the Baal didn't want only time he saw him, when Alter Rebbe was born, the Baal Shem Tov gave his parents very strict instructions how to raise him and how to keep him, protect him from an evil eye, because he was like a wonder child. But they asked for special permission on his third birthday by his upsharanish if they can bring him to the Baal Shem Tov, to cut the hair, you know, the hair cutting, to leave the payas to start fulfilling the mitzvah. The Baal Shem Tov agreed on one condition. They shouldn't tell him who he is. They should bring him. No one should know about it. They bring him in and take him right home. So they traveled with the three-year-old, you know, three years old, he was already, uh, his mind was way ahead. And he kept on asking where we're going, who we're going. And they didn't say anything, and they came to the Baal Shem Tov, and the Baal Shem Tov cut his hair. 
start, and they said, you know, started snipping his hair, and they immediately took him home, and they asked, who was that? And he said, that was Zayda. That was Zayda, that was the grandfather. That's all. They didn't, that was the only time that the Alter ever saw the Mosham They always referred to him as Zayda ever since. And he never veered, never even one iota from the Balsham even sacrificed himself not to be disconnected from the Mosham The second time he was arrested, they had many, many questions. The first time was personal. The first time he was arrested was personal. They accused him of being a revolutionary, supporting the Turkish government, who was then at, at war with Russia because he was supporting the Hasidic community in Israel, which was under the Ottoman Empire. Of course, it was all a libel. It wasn't true. He was just supporting the Jews there. But it almost had him killed. And he was miraculously released on the 19th day of Kisle. That was the celebration we had at KJ, the Febreng. The second time he was arrested, they had complaints about Hasidus itself, the philosophy of Hasidus. And Al Rebbe says they asked a very, very deep, profound question. And he had to articulate and put it in writing and help them understand with their error, but what were they worried about? And they hit on a raw nerve, they hit on something that was very real. They argued that Hasidism undermines the monarchy on a simple level because Hasidism always emphasizes that Malchus, royalty, is the lowest attribute. It's always putting down royalty all the way on the bottom. But on a deeper level, they argue that the whole idea of authority, Hasidism came to undermine the whole idea of authority. Up until that point, the simple person knew that you have to look up to authority and you have to leave it to the authorities. And um, you have to know your place. You're just a serf. You have to be silent and quiet and just bow down to the authority and uh, the sovereignty. Comes along the Balshemtiv and he empowered the simple Jew empowered the individual and made him into a whole being and important. And, and So this undermines the whole authority. In other words, the Hasidic movement is a very democratic, egalitarian movement. It basically empowers the individual. There's no authority, especially the Alter Rebbe, who articulated this vision of the Baal Shem Tev in the Tanya, empowering every single individual and every single individual Jew and there is no authority and the authority model doesn't fit the human spirit and everyone has to have, develop their own personal relationship with Hashem, even the simplest Jew and don't rely on the authorities and you have to roll up your own sleeves and you have to own your Yiddishkeit, you have to be a shareholder and you have to own it and you have to... This undermine the whole classical model of sovereignty and royalty and, and this was the beginning that time the 18th century was the beginning of the revolution of democracy and freedom and overturning authority so you, it's a direct threat to the sovereignty and the whole political system of government of the king so they hit on a very very profound and very deep point and Al-Tarebi explained to them that it's 
on the contrary, that Hasidus did not undermine sovereignty or loyalty to the king. On the contrary, because Judaism is premised on accepting upon ourselves the sovereignty of heaven, accepting upon ourselves the yoke of heaven. That's what the Shema is all about. We accept upon ourselves the yoke of heaven, as it states in the mission. But it's something that you accept upon yourself willingly, knowingly. And that makes the difference between a sovereign and a dictator. A dictator imposes his will upon you. Then he's like a mafiosi, a Stalin. But the sovereign, the king, is someone who the subjects willingly accept upon us. And he says, you'll find that the Hasidim are the most loyal. And indeed, during the war, it was like 10 years after the Alter Rebbe was released a second time, during the war with Napoleon, who are, who are the most loyal subjects to the Tsar, to the king, was the Alter Rebbe and his Hasidim. So much so that the government recognizes and forever and ever until the Tsar came to an end, his descendants were treated with special, special treatment, reserved for the, because their family, the Alter Rebbe, sacrificed himself to support the Tsar in his war against Napoleon. At that time, it wasn't clear who was going to win. Napoleon arrived all the way to the outskirts of Moscow. The Senate ran away from Moscow. Russia was about to fall and to collapse. And Alter Rebbe threw his, his uh, weight and threw everything he had behind the Tsar. So the Tsar never forgot that and was forever grateful for the Alter Rebbe and all his family forever and ever and his descendants. They were treated, they had special treatment, special privileges because of it. But this is something that, that he had to explain. So, Rabbi Levi Yitzhak Bardichev asked the Alter Rebbe, He says, I don't understand. Why did he have to go through this whole torture and be arrested? If they came to you and said they had questions and Hasidus and had questions and the Balshemtiv, you could say, I'm not a student of the Balshemtiv. I never even re- really met the Balshemtiv. And it would be a half truth. It wouldn't be a total truth because he was a student of the student of the Balshemtiv. He was a student of the Magad of Mizrich, who was the ear to the Balshemtiv and everything. And he was so close that he was, the Magid was like his father, his spiritual father, and the Balshemtiv was like his grandfather. grandfather. So, but when you're in a, in a touchy situation, when your life is on the line, you can be in prison, the Torah says you're allowed to, halachically, you're allowed to say half a truth, a truth that could be misinterpreted. I never said that. You understood it that way. That's my, not my problem. I could have said, I'm not a student of the Vashemtiv, period. You can take it to mean I have no connection to the Vashemtiv. Of course, that's not what I meant. I'm so plugged in, I'm so connected to the Vashemtiv. But at least it would save my life. I'm not obligated to tell the whole truth. It's like when it comes to a shidduch, it says you're not allowed to lie, but you don't have to tell the whole truth either. <laughs> you can say, yeah, half truth, not a half truth. You're not allowed to lie, but you don't have to say everything. <laughs> so why did Alton Abbey insist and, and say, yes? I am a student of the Baal Shem Tev, and he sacrificed himself to defend every single statement of the Baal Shem Tev, every conduct of the Baal Shem Tev. And the Rebbe says, because I didn't want to be disconnected. He answered, I didn't want to be disconnected from the Baal Shem Tev, even for a moment. 
even in a way that they could misinterpret. And I wouldn't be doing anything wrong. I just can't. I'm so connected. And we see that consistently. Every single step of the Alter Rebbe. Mashiach told the Bashamtiv, when when he asked him, when are you coming? And he says, when your wellsprings will spread, Alter Rebbe will sacrifice himself in order to spread the wellsprings of the Bashamtiv, the teachings of the Bashamtiv. That's why he published the Tanya. He wrote the Tanya. And what was the name of the Tanya? Sefer Shal the book of the Benin. Al Rebbe was the first one to write a book for the Benini, for the average Jew. Everyone wrote a book for the Tzaddik, mm-hmm. how to be perfect, how to be per- perfection. But the Baal Shem celebrated the simple Jew. That was the revolution of the Baal Shem. He elevated the simple Jew and showed how precious every Jew is and how much infinite treasures you can find in each and every Jew. So the Alter Rebbe, likewise, dedicated his book and celebrates the Benini, the average, 99, not the Tzaddik, the 1% or the 0.1%, but the 99%, the average, elevating the simplest Jew and showing how every single Jew could reach the level of the Benini. And then, in the letters of Teshuvah, up until that point, Teshuvah was always associated with fasting, with sadness, melancholy, heaviness, bitterness. The Baal Shem Tev taught that a Jew has to be joyful. The very first name of Hasidim were the joyful ones before they were called Hasidim. The Alter Rebbe dedicated this, the gates of Teshuvah, teaching us how Teshuvah has to be done with joy, not with melancholy and sadness. And what did the Baal Shem Tev say right before he passed away? He said, I have the power to do what Elijah the prophet did. I can go to heaven on the chariot without, without dying. I don't have to go through that whole death. But I want to fulfill what it says in the Torah. Hashem tells Adam, you were, came from earth and you are going to return to the earth will offer Tashu. So I want to fulfill that mitzvah of returning to the earth. And that's why he passed away and he was buried on the holiday of Shavuos. What was the last thing the Alter Rebbe wrote before he passed away? Letter number 20 in the Holy Letters. One of the most powerful revolutionary letters ever written. It's on tanyaclass.com. The whole letter is about the specialness of earth. How earth, even though earth is the lowest and everyone tramples on earth, but earth is really the highest and the deepest and the greatest and the greatest innovation you find in the earth, the ability to create something from nothing. The advantage of the physical. Even though the Alter Rebbe is about to make the transition to the spiritual, to the afterlife, and the whole letter, the last thing he wrote before he passed away is about how special and how unique this physical earth is, this physical world is. The object with which we do the mitzvahs, the physical mitzvah, the physical object. And that's why there's nothing greater than mitzvah, there's nothing greater than the physical and the deed, the, the action. 
So you see from the beginning, throughout, consistently, throughout his life, until the very end, Al-Tarebbe did not veer from the Baal Shem Tev, like followed every, everything the Baal Shem Tev lived and did. Al-Tarebbe, Al-Tarebbe once said, the things he heard from the teachers, Magid, about the Baal Shem Tev, because if I didn't, if I wouldn't know that he's he's a human being of flesh and blood, I wouldn't believe it because he was so wondrous. So everything about the Baal Shem Tev was so wondrous and so holy and, and, and incredible that, that if I didn't hear with my own ears from my teacher that he's a regular human being, flesh and blood, born to a mother and a father, I would I couldn't even believe it. And we saw, just like the Balshemtev, we saw Balshemske miracles, miracles that were totally way beyond nature, totally transcendent of nature. So too, we saw by the Alter Rebbe, such incredible, astounding miracles. And just tell one story, and then we'll conclude the second essay. The um, the president of Vilna, Rabbi Meir of Falls. Vilna was the stronghold of the Misnagdim, of the opponents to Hasid. To be a president of such a town, such a city, you had to be a very, very special, capable, brilliant individual, wealthy, capable, powerful individual. And Meir of Falls ended up leaving Vilna, ended up being one of the fiercest Hasidim of the Alter Rebbe. How did this happen? There was a woman, a lady in Eastern Europe, in Russia, and her husband disappeared. Either he ran away or he went on a business trip and he never came home. And she was stuck. She couldn't remarry. Until you have a get, a woman can't marry, can't have two husbands. She didn't know what to do. So they said, go to the Alter Rebbe. Alter Rebbe is a miracle worker. He can give you a blessing. So she traveled to the Alter Rebbe. And the Alter Rebbe tells her, travel to Vilna, go to the president of the community, the Jewish community, and he'll help you find your husband. She was very poor. She couldn't afford the horse and wagon to get to Vilna, but the Hasidim heard what the Rebbe says. They collected a little money for her to travel and to sustain her while she's there. And she travels to Vilna. She knocks on the door. The wife opens the door and says, how can I help you? She says, uh, the Alter Rebbe, don't forget the Alter Rebbe was arch enemy number one. <laughs> he was the leader of the Hasidim in Russia, which is the enemy of Vilna, the, everything that Vilna stood for. He says, the Alter Rebbe sent me to your husband. I have to meet your husband. Your husband has to help me to find my husband. See, how do you mind? What does my husband know about? Doesn't know you, doesn't know your husband, Altareva. She basically almost slammed the door in his face, in her face. She was persistent, she came back. So he says, okay, fine, I'll speak to you. Anyway, the, the president of the community, Mary Falls, meets with her. She tells him what Alter Rebbe says. He said, listen, I don't know. I mean, it sounds very strange to me. 
why, why would the, the Rebbe send you to me? I don't know you. I don't know your husband. I mean, I'm the president of the community. What do I know about that? I don't know. I mean, she says, the Alter Rebbe says, you're going to help me? You're going to help me. I'm not leaving town until you help me. Anyway, he asked for a description for the husband. She gave a description of the husband, and he tried to persuade her, listen, lady, you're wasting your time. This is a fool's errand. You know, we know the Hasidim are nuts. <laughs> and, and go home. I mean, what are you wasting your time? I can't help you. I mean, this is, it's, I think it's a crime to take an innocent lady, a poor lady who, who has a tragedy, and just to send her on a wild goose chase and go home to your family and, and don't waste your time. Anyway, I'm not leaving town. So listen, he, see, he, couldn't, he sees he can't get rid of her. He says, you know what? stay in the communal house. They had a communal house for people who were passing through, couldn't afford lodgings, stay there, and what can I tell you? I mean, and she stayed, and she would, every few days, she would come knocking the door, no, so you have news for me? <laughs> Did you find my husband yet? He couldn't get rid of this nudik. Anyway, every once in a while, the police would summon Rabbi Mayor Falls, the president of the community, because sometimes they had prisoners, sometimes they had some Jewish prisoners, and they would ask them if he would like to redeem them or whatever it was. Fine, so this is routine. He comes, and he's looking over the prisoners, those who are Jewish, and one of them meets the description that this woman described as her husband. See, he tells the police, please wait a minute, please wait, I have to run. He runs, collects this woman, brings her you know, from the other room, says, take a look, is this your husband? She says, yes. So he calls, he tells the police, I'll pay for him, I'll redeem him. He calls in the other room, he says, I'm going to redeem you on condition. Are you married? Tell me the truth. He confessed. Whatever it was, whatever reason, he ran away, he wasn't successful, whatever it was, he agreed to give a get. Right then and there, on the spot, they wrote a get, and she was free. So something moved inside. He says, you know, maybe, maybe all these stories I hear about the Hasidim, all this propaganda, this fake news that I'm getting in Vilna, maybe it's not exactly the way they describe it. <laughs> maybe there is something here. Maybe Al-Turepi is not some Hasidim, not some lunatics. I mean, this is pretty interesting. Anyway, but he just, you know, kept it in the, in, the, in the file and moved on. He was still the leader, the president of Vilna, the, the bastion of Misnagdim. Anyway, a little while later, this person comes, shows up in shul in town, big shul in Vilna. And he kept to himself. And every night he would learn all day and all night. He would just eat take out a little herring that he had, sleep in the shul, learn all the time. This, this was all week, and it came for Shabbos. The Gabbai noticed that he seems like a very, he's not your typical beggars coming into town. He's not a beggar. You see, he's a very intelligent person. He's learning a whole day, and he's, so I have to find him a place to stay for Shabbos. So he says, you know, there was a very wealthy person in town who loved to have guests especially guests who are learned or scholarly. 
he asked the Gabe, please, if you see anyone passing in town who's learned it, I'd love to take him into my house, have him around my table on Friday night. So he says, yes, someone came. He looks, you can see from his face that he's not your typical. He's head and shoulders above average. And I see the way he's conducting himself. He's learning all day and night, and he's not keeping to himself. So they both approached him. They said, please, I want to invite you for Shabbos. Come to my table for Shabbos. He says, no, 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 I'm happy to stay in shul. But they insisted, and they insisted, and they persisted. And they said, okay, on one condition. As long as I don't have to sleep by you, I'll just eat by you. As long as I can come back to shul, because he wanted to learn all night. He wasn't fine. They came. He came to the rich person, sat around the table. They had a conversation in Torah. It was on such a high level. This person was a real, real scholar. I mean, of a very high caliber. And he enjoyed it very much came time for benching, and the host, the rich Jew, the host, gives out a huge sigh. Sigh, a krecht, like he sighs from the, from the depth of his Anyway, the guest doesn't understand, but he keeps quiet, and he says, please can come back for lunch, we'll continue our conversation. Come back for lunch, continue the conversation of learning at a very high caliber. This rich Jew has also loved learning and Invited the back for Shabbos. And again, right before benching, he gave a big sigh. Again, he invites him back for Shabbos. Should this, the third meal, you know, in Russia, the meal could be uh, 10 o'clock at night, you know, it's still light. And third meal. And again, he gives out a huge sigh. So after that, the, the guest says, Listen, I, I see you sighing, please. Maybe I can help you. Share with me what, what's going on. I, this sigh is, sounds very, very real. What's going on? He says, no, nothing you can help me. He says, please, you have to tell me. Maybe I can help you. So he tells him that him and his partner were caught or accused of smuggling or not paying taxes. And, and uh, they were sentenced. And now they're waiting. They have an appeal in, in the capital in St. Petersburg and they have the appeal now but it doesn't look good and they could be sentenced to years and years in Siberia labor, hard labor, slave labor it's a disaster for them and their families and um, they don't know what to do so this guest says listen I have advice for you you should know that I am a chassid of the Alta Rebbe I am from the smallest of his students. You were impressed with my scholarship? I'm the smallest of his students. I suggest you and your partner go to the Alter Rebbe, ask for a bracha, because he's, he's, he's an incredible, unbelievable tzaddik, and his brachas are unbelievably powerful. You know, for them to go to, go to the Alter Rebbe, it's bad enough that they have a court case if people of Vilna find out that they went to the enemy and to the arch enemy <laughs> and they went to the Alter Rebbe, that, that'll be the end. The children will never be able to marry anyone. Their shaduchim are finished. That'll be the end of that. <laughs> so you don't know what to do. But they were good friends with Amir Fall, the president of the community. So the two partners meet Amir Falls, asking, we have something very secretive we have to discuss with you. They go into his study, they lock the door, and he says, we, we, we are swearing you to secrecy. Whatever advice you're going to give us, please don't even mention to anyone that we even asked you this question. 
But this is what happened. They explained the whole story. And he suggested we should go to Al Tadeb. What do you think? They were certain he was going to say, Are you kidding? Are you crazy? Out of your mind? To their surprise, because he remembered the story that happened to the woman, he said, I think it's a good idea. You have nothing to lose. Go. Don't tell anyone. Go, go. And we'll keep it a secret. We won't tell anyone. Okay, they were happy. They respected his advice. So they said, okay, they went. They got an appointment. They come to the Alter Rebbe, pour their hearts out, their life is on the line, and they could be sent to slave labor in Siberia, and it'll be to ruin them and destroy them. Alter Rebbe listens, and Alter Rebbe says, I can see from your face that you're Torah scholars. Let me ask you, what does the Talmud mean? That the Gemara says, the Talmud says, that Malchusa, the Ara, came Malchusa the Rekia. That the kingdom of this world is a reflection of the kingdom above and high, the divine kingdom. Royalty in this world is a reflection of divine royalty. What does the Gemara mean? What does the Talmud mean? He said, that we don't know. I'll explain it to you. It means that in last week's Torah portion, Hashem says that that you're not allowed to pronounce God's name. We don't pronounce God's name as it's written. We're not allowed to pronounce God's name. God's name is hidden. So we write it, His name, but we don't pronounce it. We say Adonai, we don't say Hashem's name. So too a king. A king has a name, a personal name. But no one would dare refer to the king by his name. You refer to the king as czar, as Kaiser, whatever country you're in, but you, as a king, you don't mention his name. That's the respect. That's what the Talmud means. That the, ref, the kingdom in this world is a reflection of the kingdom in high. Just like God, you pay him respect, you don't mention his name directly. So too, we don't mention the king's name, we just say, sir. And Al-Tarebbe dismissed him. <laughs> they were like, are you kidding me? Is, is he sane? I mean, we're pouring our hearts out, our life is on the line. And he, f- and he finds the time to discuss a piece of Talmud. He wants to show us how smart he is or the piece of Talmud. What's the relevance of this piece of Talmud to our lives, to what's going on? He said, you know, everything we heard about the Hasidim is 100% true. They're wild, they're insane, they're off the wall. And that's it. Anyway, they come back to Vilna. And we go right away to Amerita Falls. He says, how did it go? He says, this is insanity. This is what happened. Shemir Fall says, ah, you're right, the Chassidim are insane. The story of the woman, it must have been a fluke. And that's it. He dismissed it, the Chassidim. Anyway, uh, they go to St. Petersburg. They're, they hire the top lawyers, top advocates. It's not looking good at all. He said, the only thing I can advise you at this point is, as a last resort, the Minister of Justice takes a walk every day in the Royal Park, you know, maybe, maybe in the uh, Russian Versailles, in St. Petersburg, bribe the guard, get into the park, and when you see him, just appeal to his humanity, appeal to his justice, fall, in his, fall, at, fall at his feet, and just appeal to him. Because there's nothing else we can really do. In the court, you're going to lose. So they bribe the guard, and he says, please tell us when the minister of justice is coming. Anyway, they were hiding behind the bushes, the guard was far away. And that day, the minister of justice got sick. 
He wasn't taking a walk. Instead, who was taking a walk? The Minister of Culture, Minister of Askola, Minister of Culture. The guard was hinting to them that this is not the, this is not the minister. They knew the time is coming. This is not, this is not him. He didn't show up today. They, they didn't understand. They thought he's hinting to them, please, that this is it. So they rush. They fall at his feet and they start crying and begging. He says, please, have mercy. We're good people. We're moral people. We have families. Please don't send us to Siberia. Do whatever you He says, please, I'm sorry. You have the wrong minister. I'm not the minister of justice. I'm the minister of culture. So they apologize and they, they start to leave. But he says, wait a minute. Please, uh, please come back. I see from your face that you're educated, that you're Torah scholars. Well, the czar just asked me a question the other day, and I didn't know how to answer. The czar asked me, what does the Talmud mean, the Jewish Talmud, when the Talmud says that the royal <laughs> of this world is a reflection of the kingdom on high? What does it mean? I didn't know what to tell him. Maybe you can help me. They heard this. <laughs> oh, my. He says, of course we can tell you. And they tell him. He loved it. He says, wow, that's unbelievable. The czar is going to love this. As a matter of fact, I'm going to tell him who told us to. And the czar can do anything. I'm going to ask the czar to send a bill to the Senate on your behalf to free you. That's exactly what happened. He came back, told the czar, explained the czar. Loved it because it resonated. This is real. This is exactly what Talmud means. I loved it. And then he tells them, I didn't come up with this. This is the exact story that happened. These people fell on my feet. They were crying. And I can see from their answer and I can see from who they are, what a caliber of people they are. I don't believe any of this is, applies to them. So please send to the Senate. And he sent to the Senate and they passed this the law and they were completely absolved. He immediately came running back to Vilna first thing they went to see a good friend of a married fall who told him the whole story and that was all he needed to hear he packed his bags <laughs> resigned from the presidency of Vilna and he became one of the Altarev's strongest chassid or maybe he stayed on in the president. I don't know if he was able to stay on becoming an open chassid of the Altarev <laughs> these are open miracles or wonders that uh, happen constantly Al-Tarebbe, just like with the Baal Shem So this is Chavdal Tevis, and uh, we have the merit to study the Tanya and to be connected. The Rebbe, all the Rebbe's, the Al-Tarebbe, the Baal Shem Magid. Okay, so we are, I believe on page 275, he says that the, that the only way to protect that the uh, divine energy should be protected and should not be siphoned off by the negative energy, negative forces, is only through the mitzvot, the deeds. Our mitzvot, when we do the mitzvot, when we do the good deeds, this protects and makes sure that all this abundant energy that we draw down should only flow towards holiness, and there shouldn't be any negative, um, any negative siphoning off and strengthening of the negative energy. And then, even though he says that this could also be affected through prayer, he says, other marishan through his mitzvot and through his prayer. So he's referring to the act of prayer. 
physical moving of the lips, which again is considered a physical act. So it's only through the physical act because what gives you the energy, what gives you the strength to move your lips? It's the food that you eat. It's, it's the everything that involved in getting the food and the food that you eat. So it's the physical. It's not like the meditation and the thought. A person could be exhausted, so exhausted that you can't even open your mouth. You don't even have the strength to open your mouth. A person could be so sick, he doesn't even have the strength to open his mouth. But you don't stop thinking. Because thought is connected to the soul. It's spiritual. So as long as your soul, as long as you're breathing and you're alive, your soul thinks. You can think, no problem. But speaking, speech, comes from the moving of the lips, comes from the body, it's physical. It comes from the food that you eat. That gives you strength. So it's when you use that energy and you use it to pray and use it to do a mitzvah, to physically do a mitzvah and to physically pray, to move your lips, to say the words of prayer, mouth the words of prayer, then then that, that accomplishes that achieves the uh, goal of keeping that holy energy, that abundant flow of holy energy, keeping it channeled in holiness. And the negative energies, negative forces cannot nash on it, cannot uh, leech off that energy. The acts of refinement of the seer that are accomplished through practical mitzvah, essentially spirit by means of the divine name, Ban, and from Yitzhira to Berea and Tzili, as noted in Sha'ar Ma'at. The mitzvot are elevated, one elevation to a higher elevation. So it moves its way up from this world, the physical. By doing the mitzvah, we elevate the good. It's hidden in the mitzvah, hidden in the physical. We elevate the good to a higher world, from the world of action to the world of formation. Then it's further elevated higher up to the world of creation. And ultimately, it's elevated all the way to the world of Atzilut. So it becomes united with godliness. It becomes completely united and one with godliness. So this is by way of elevation. So the only way to accomplish this accomplish this is only by way of elevation and that by when we elevate then we cause the flow downward we cause the unions the holy unions supernal unions like the union of husband and wife male and female which causes to give birth to create something new to bring something new into this world bring a new flow of energy, a new divine flow of energy. So it's only by the elevation, just like the feminine waters that evoke a response from the masculine waters when there's an elevation from below. So when we elevate the physical, and this elevation all the way on high and reaches all the way to the world of the divine world of, of emanation, that arouses and evokes that union of male and female, that draws down a new energy that transcends both the masculine and the feminine. Just like when the male and female are together, they draw down a new life. They create something new, something that's even greater than both of them. The ability to create something new is greater than both of them. It's only through the union that they're able to bring down and draw down this new energy. But it all begins from the arousal from below.
So it's only through a mitzvah, a physical mitzvah, that creates that arousal from below. That could evoke that response. But if there's no arousal from below, then there's nothing to evoke that response to bring, draw down this energy. Okay, thus we can understand. Thus we can understand why mere thought accomplishes nothing. As essay one of Kuntras Acharon quotes above from the Zohar. Like he said, of course, thought is important and spiritual. And it does accomplish something spiritually. But all it accomplishes is in the spiritual realm. But it doesn't draw anything down. There's no effect in the physical. It doesn't draw anything down into this world. In order to be able to draw down into this world, it has to be something uh, um, action. It has to be action involved. Something that involves the physical world. For unless Mayan Nukhim is elevated from the kings of Morgan, it is impossible to draw forth drops from above to affect the union of zone, an acronym for the above terms Za and Nukhim. So the kings are referred to in, this, in, this, in the Torah, the end of Parshas told us, refers to the the kings of Esau, of Edom. Yitzhak's firstborn son, Esau. And the kings refer to the world of chaos, and it says they reigned and they died. This refers to the shattering of the vessels of the world of chaos. And they were kings before the Jewish kings, because the world of chaos precedes the world of mending, but there was a shattering of the vessels. And the result of that shattering, the sparks, the lights and the vessel, like the content of the vessel, the vessels were shattered. And also the content of the vessels were, were spilled and poured out into the dirt. And that's what creates all the physical things in this world. Everything in this world has a spark from the world of chaos. And that's why it's much more intense, because it precedes the world of Mending the world of chaos, it's much more intense, much more powerful. That's why the attraction that we have to the physical is much more powerful than the attraction that we have to the spiritual. If something is too attractive, if, something is <laughs> if the craving is too powerful, you have to suspect that maybe it's not kosher, because kosher things are not, uh, not so uh, powerful. <laughs> it's like a domesticated animal. It's not a vildechaya, it's quiet, it's tame, versus... Uh, a non-kosher animal is fierce, intense, powerful. So the attractions to, to non-kosher thing is intense, powerful. Versus the attraction to something that's kosher, it's how attractive could a piece of herring be already? <laughs> um, so, but it's a, so because at the root, at the source, it comes from a much deeper place, much more powerful energy. The sparks come from much a deeper place. So, but when we elevate the sparks and we return it back to its source, to a higher place in the world of men, that's what evokes a powerful transmission, a powerful drawing down of a divine energy, of a powerful energy that we're able to draw down. So it comes in response to this elevation. Because you've accomplished something new. You've done something unexpected. You've redeemed, you've released the spark, you've redeemed the spark, you reconnected it, you brought it back home. You've taken something physical and transformed it into something godly, into something holy. 
That's a novelty. That's an innovation. That's creative. That's something powerful. That gives Hashem's pleasure. That evokes a response. Versus if the soul is thinking, if the soul is meditating, that the soul is connected to God is not such a great novelty. Because <laughs> the soul is godly. So if naturally, it comes naturally for a soul to think about godliness. There's nothing innovative, there's nothing creative, there's nothing exciting. It's predictable. It's pretty boring. And no newspapers in heaven. What are they going to report? Everything is predictable. But this is something unpredictable. In this coarse, crass world, you were able to take something coarse and crass, physical, material, after which resulted from the shattering of those vessels and this intense, powerful, bacchanalian energy, and you were able to reconnect it to godliness. You were able to utilize this energy to pray, to you move your lips, and to do a mitzvah, a physical mitzvah with a physical object, with your hands and, and with your organs, and use a physical object and do a mitzvah with it. This is a novelty. This is something new. This is exciting. This is a parrot that speaks. It's exciting. You don't expect a parrot to talk. A person talks, it bores you to death. Can't keep your eyes open. But a parrot that speaks, believe me, it's going to wake you up because you don't expect it. It's unexpected. This is what evokes a powerful response. This elevation can be affected only through activity on the level of the seer, as stated above. Zion Malchut can unite only if the degree of illumination that transcends them both is drawn down upon them. To use a mortal analogy, concerning the union of man and woman, it is written, male and female did he create them. And Hashem blessed them and said to them, be fruitful and multiply, i.e. in order for their union to bear fruit, a blessing must first descend upon the partners from above. And these drops of blessing from a source in divinity that transcends both Za and Malchut cannot be drawn forth unless Mayan Nukvim is aroused and elevated by refinement of the materiality of Klipanoga. So there has to be a higher force because you need a blessing. There are many couples who can't have children and doctors can't explain it. They don't know why. It's a blessing. It's not something to be taken for granted. When husband and wife are together, Hashem gives a blessing and that enables them to create something that will outlive them. How, how do you create something that's greater than you, that will outlive you? You can't give what you don't have. How can someone finite create something that's infinite? It's a blessing that comes from above. When there's a union between male and female, there's a blessing. And it's only male and female, not female and female, not male and male. There's a blessing that comes about. So when a person, when we elevate, when we refine the material, we evoke, we elevate, we arouse and evoke this response, this tremendous blessing that creates this union, this supernal union. Why does this only come about through this arousal from below? What Zah desires to seek its nurture from its mother i.e. from uh, Sphera or Bina, rather than giving forth for the lower realms, is only through the elevation of Man, of Nova, that the higher degree of illumination is drawn down to the desire, causing it the desire to unite with the Sphera beneath the mountain. See, every level desires to ascend, to go even higher, 
like a fire, a flame, jumps up, wants to go higher, wants to leap up, it wants to be absorbed in its source. Every effect wants to become one with its cause, it wants to go higher, wants to go deeper, wants to... So how do you get the masculine energy to lower itself and to become one, to create a union between the masculine energy and the receiving, the feminine energy? When the masculine energy would prefer to go up, to go back to its source, to go to its mother, to its cause, to be connected higher. What could possibly motivate the giver, the mashpia, to give when he would rather receive? Be absorbed in something higher. Get lost in something higher. Be absorbed in something higher. Reach even higher. Why would the, why would the level of the giver agree to lower himself and to descend and to be busy with giving and to transmitting to the receiver, the one in the receiving end, when he should be totally absorbed and busy with becoming absorbed in something higher? How is this possible? So he says the only thing that can motivate the giver to give is because there is a higher level, a greater level that's greater than himself and greater than the giver and greater than the receiver. And that level could only be revealed when he is giving and he is involved with giving and transmitting to the receiver. It's only when the masculine and the feminine merge, come together. At that point, they draw down a transcendent blessing, a transcendent light, a transcendent energy. And because he wants that energy, and he knows the only way to get that energy is when he's focused below, focused downward, and is busy transmitting what he has to the receiver, that he'll be able to receive this energy. That's what motivates him. So the only way to receive this powerful energy is only through the arousal from below. And it's only this arousal from below that draws down this powerful energy. And that's why the masculine energy is involved and engaged in transmitting to the lower level. You know, even a person who has a desire to give, a person enjoys giving, to do good, to be kind, to give, to help. But even though the desire in itself could be very satisfying and you're just having that desire and having that love and that willingness to give and to help and to do kindness but it's only when the receiver actually receives it and it actually gets done that you physically do the kindness that the satisfaction the inner satisfaction is tremendous it's on a whole different level when it's actually received. Because the power of receiving and the power of... is so much deeper, so much more powerful than the power of giving. 
the giver, if he's alone, the giver could be alone and he can have a very full life. I love giving, even though there's no one around, I can still love giving. I can even find satisfaction in the fact that I want to give. But it's only when there's a giver and a receiver and they complement each other and they, it becomes a full circle and the giver actually gives to the receiver and the receiver actually receives from the giver and they become one. That's when you really feel the deepest satisfaction, deepest level of satisfaction because the root of receiving is so much deeper than the root of giving. And when they come together, that's when you touch the deepest place. And that's why the giver pursues the receiver. It's so important for the giver to make sure that the receiver actually receives. It's so important for that godliness should actually be drawn down into this world and it should be felt and palpable because it's only when it's come full circle that you know that you're touching the circle, you're touching the infinite. You know, the circle represents the infinite. There's no beginning, there's no middle, there's no end. So this world is linear. Everything in this world is linear. There's a hierarchy. There's a giver, there's a receiver. And it's limited. To touch the infinite, to, to be able to come full circle, to touch the infinite, it's only when the giver and the receiver merge. And the husband and wife are together, intimate. That's when you touch intimacy, pleasure, the deepest, deepest, deepest levels. And this is what motivates, this is what drives the giver to give. Why he's paying so much attention and focusing on the receiver and making sure the receiver receives. And this is what causes him to draw down. The word chatan, chasan, in Hebrew comes from the word, the Talmud says, chavez darga, he has to go down the level. In a practical level, the Torah is giving us advice. You know, there's no, there's no woman, there's no girl uh, too good enough for me. It's just, you know, come down the step, <laughs> relax. <laughs> you think you have to go down the step, go down the step. Don't marry someone who's superior to you. Marry someone, go, just go down the step. But the chasen, the deeper level, the chasen who's transmitting, who's giving, who's masculine energy. And the kala is to receive. She yearns, she desires to receive her husband, to receive the masculine energy. And when the, these two energies come together in that union, it's only then that you reach the full circle. You're able to draw down the infinite, and you're able to create it, and you're able to reveal this new energy, give birth to something totally new. So this is why the excitement of the giver, why the giver is so f totally focused on making sure on the receiver, making sure the receiver receives and receives it totally and properly and 100% and it's totally focused. Because it's not sacrificing. It's not the giver is the sacrificing of himself. I would rather be absorbed with a level that's beyond me, 
why am I wasting my time and energy and focusing on someone, something that's below me? But he's not sacrificing on the contrary. By focusing and paying attention and giving and transmitting and making sure that it's received and it is received, that's how the giver re- touches the infinite and is able to reach a level he can never reach otherwise. Even beyond the mother, even, because that's also the cause is just the cause of the effect. It's still relative. It's still within this linear, we call Seder Ostalshalis. It's all within the link and it's all but to, to touch the infinite, to come full circle. It's only by coming full circle you touch the circle, you touch the infinite. So that could only come about, he says, it's only come about from the arousal that comes from below. The arousal that comes from below awakens within the mashbia his desire to give. So it's only the arousal that comes from the physical mitzvah. And then this uh, divine spark that's in the physical is elevated and all the way back to the world of Atzilut, world of emanation. This evokes the response. This evokes and engages the mashbia to give and to transmit and this draws down this divine, creative, new energy, divine flow of energy into this world in a revealed way. And it also protects and makes sure and guards and makes sure that this energy, this flow, should only flow in the direction of holiness. There shouldn't be anything to grab onto, anything the leech cannot leech off it and can leeches, negative energy can't nash off it or leech off it or divert, siphon off this energy. But then does, but doesn't that depend on the thoughts you have at the time of conception? Well, thoughts are very important. It doesn't say thoughts are not important. But the thoughts without action, nothing happens. It's the, it's the uh, meditate from today till tomorrow. But you're talking about the negativity part of it. Doesn't that no. Oh, that has to do with the traits. If you think negative traits, yeah. you'll, you can damage the soul, the garments of the soul. So thoughts are very important. We're not, he's not minimizing the importance of thought. Even in the first essay, he said thoughts are very powerful. But it only has a spiritual effect. He's talking about spiritual garments. Again, you're affecting the spiritual garments of the child, which can harm the child for the rest of his life, or disadvantage the child for the rest of his life. So yes, thoughts are very powerful. Spirituality is very powerful. But in, but in terms of drawing down into this world, to, to draw down into this world, it's only through the physical. It's only by way of the physical that we can evoke the response, we can awaken the response, and we can draw down the energy back into the physical. So it's like, it's like the, um, the spirituality is limited to the spiritual. A teacher and a student is also a transmission, but it's a spiritual transmission. There's no physical transmission. It's only through the physical transmission of a husband and wife that you can actually create Create something new, create a child, create a physical new being. You can't create a student. <laughs> you can teach a student, but you can't create a student. If the student has no brain, has no head, you can teach him today to tomorrow. <laughs> it's not going to make any difference. <laughs> but you can, create a, you can create a child through the physical. So spiritual is powerful, but it's limited. It's only through the physical that you really make a change, a real dramatic 
change, you evoke, and, you and there's a response, and you come full circle, and you draw down, and you reveal, and you create, and you keep it healthy as well. You keep it limited to the holiness. So you're adding more energy to holiness, but you're not adding any new energy or new surge of life, of energy, to the negative, negative. Examine Zohar, Parshat Kapude, page 244b, which states that there is a mode of gazing. So till now he was quoting the Kabbalah, the uh, works of the Arizal. But now he's quoting the Zohar. The Zohar says... Just as there is a mode of verbalized prayer, there's also a mode of prayer with Kavana by means of which one meditates and attains infinite heights as one gazes upon the glory of the king. This refers to the intentions Kavanot in worship and the supernal unions for those who know and understand how to gaze. Such individuals can have an impact on this world through their unarticulated intentions alone. So he's asking a question. We just finished reading, reading this whole essay and saying that the only way to impact this world is only through the physical mitzvah or through the physical prayer, moving of the lips. When the Zohar states clearly that there is that possibility of looking, looking very deeply, gazing, like, like uh, doves gaze at each other very intensely. They look at each other, stare at each other. That's their way of intimacy. They physically stare at each other, They're gazing intently, like looking intently in someone's eyes. It's very, it's very, it could be unnerving or it could be very, very intensely intimate, you know, gazing clearly into someone's eyes and becoming one with them. I have a share this week that said it gets to a level where the mouth is insufficient, the eyes can take over and communicate. Right? Uh, eyes are very powerful. At a very high level. Eyes are very powerful. So there's a concept of prayer when you're looking at like Hashem's beauty, Hashem's greatness, Hashem's infinity, you're just gazing. It's like you're seeing the wonders of the world. You're just gazing and mesmerized and absorbed. So it could be a level of prayer where you're just gazing at the wonder of Hashem's infinite self and the wonder of Hashem. And you're like gazing intently and, and, and you feel so intimate and you feel such ecstasy and such intimacy and pleasure. See it in the mind's eye? Is that what they mean by the well, yeah, that's seeing. It's more, it's more than just understanding. Seeing is almost like, almost like physically seeing. Of course, you can't see something spiritual, but it's as close as you can get. You can picture it that it's almost, almost it's so tangible, it's so real, as if you see it. Just like when you see something physical, when you're looking at one of the wonders of the world, I see it. So you're totally mesmerized, absorbed. It's an experience. It's not just abstract knowledge. Seeing in the mind's eye, it becomes an experience where I see it. You're experiencing God in it's like I'm in the royal palace. I, I just see, I mean, <laughs> you're standing at the Hermitage. You're just, you're just like seeing it. This, this. So you ex it's an experience. It's not just understanding. It's beyond that. It's deeper than that. It's experiential. And such prayer, the Zohar says, the power of such prayer, you have the power to change the world, physically change the world. See here, we just said that in order to change the world, to bring about change in the world, it's only through the physical. It's only by physically praying and moving your lips. 
Versus in the Zohar states, clearly you can have such a powerful level of prayer, which is purely spiritual. I'm gazing, seeing with the eye of the mind, and I'm intent gazing and intimacy, and I can, and I can accomplish prayer. I'm praying and I'm changing the world. Prayer, I'm praying to Hashem to change things. So when you pray on such a deep, intense level, so he doesn't mention, mention moving of the lips. It's not about moving of the lips. It's a purely spiritual experience. Here we just finished saying that it has to be physical, and here the Zohar says clearly it can be done on a purely spiritual level. So what's the answer to that? So the nefesh, ruach, and the shama themselves constitute the arousal initiated by the recipient, which is known as man, through their self-sacrificing devotion to the Torah, and during the Tachman prayer, during which we say, to you, Hashem, I lift my soul, as is known. So he's answering. Is we're talking about very special individual Jews who are sacrificing themselves. They are sacrificing. They're sacrificing their egos. They're sacrificing themselves. As we say, not only in the Shema, not only in the Shema but we say right after the Shema in the Phyllis Apayim, Eilecha Hashem Nafshi Esa, I am giving my soul to you, Hashem. I'm totally delivering myself to you. Total sacrifice, total. So when the the tzaddik is giving up of his being, he's totally giving his being to Hashem. He's tearing himself and giving his whole being to Hashem, delivering his whole being to Hashem. Every fiber of his being, every bone in his body, not 99.9%, 100%. If you're able to give 100% of who you are to Hashem, sincerely and genuinely, 100%, then yes, you can shake up the whole world. Because we are a microcosm of the world. If you can give 100% to Hashem, then yes, you will physically change the world. That's a very high level. This ability, however, remains the province of a select few. The overwhelming majority of Jews accomplish this elevation through this vote action involving an actual deed or speech. And in this manner, they were able to bring about a union face-to-face between Sa and Malchut, the sublime union of Kedusha, Brichu, and the Shechina, which draws divinity down into the soil. You're right. It's only the unique tzaddik, the special tzaddik, who serves Hashem with all his heart and all his soul and all his being and completely delivers his neshama to Hashem. It, it takes everything he has gives everything he has to Hashem, this tzaddik could, does evoke the same response. Hashem responds in kind. You give everything of yourself to me, Hashem responds in kind. Hashem gives himself, so to speak, and reveals himself to the tzaddik and through the tzaddik into the world and causes changes. Our prayers are answered. That's why the tzaddik could answer, could give blessings, and the tzaddik could pray for us and cause miracles to happen and change, change reality and change nature and change events because the tzaddik is totally <laughs> devoted to Hashem. I mean, we have, it's rare, but we have on tape it's some prayers that ever was davening. And you see, he can't even get past, he can't even say any word. He says a word and he just breaks down crying, like, like a child crying to his, fa- to his father, to his parent. And it's like, 
you see how he's davening literally with every fiber of his being, every bone in his body. There's no, there's no cool detachment. There's no holding back. It's like it's like a hundred percent, a thousand percent. So if you are so giving over everything that you have to Hashem, every ounce of energy, every molecule, everything that you have, every atom of your existence, you're totally giving yourself over to Hashem. You're sacrificing yourself. You're devoting yourself totally, 100%. Then your prayers are answered. I will just conclude. The, uh, the uh, Baal Shem Tev once saw there was a terrible decree against the Jewish community. And all of his prayers and his colleagues' prayers, the, the greatest rabbis and mystics and scholars of Eastern Europe, they couldn't avert the terrible decree. And then when he was in heaven trying to help, help his community, he saw there was a palace, which was a tremendous light coming out from this palace. And this palace was built from the Tehillim, the Psalms of a simple Jew. The simple Jew was an ignoramus. But every day, he would recite the whole Tehillim five times. As he went about working in the farm, in the, in the derful, he would say Tehillim constantly. He knew Tehillim by heart. Ignoramuses of the old <laughs> better than some rabbis today. How many rabbis know the whole tillum word for word by heart? But this ignoramus knew the whole tillum word for word by heart. And every day, constantly, he would say, and he was such an ignoramus, maybe he would even say it when you weren't even allowed to say it. Maybe even when he was in the bathroom, he didn't know the law that you're not allowed to. So when he was lips, as long as he was awake and he was alive, he was constantly moving his lips and repeating the whole tillum. Every day he said five times tillum. He created such a, a, a palace from his words of Tehillim and the sincerity and the simplicity. He was so wholehearted and sincere. All the time, every day, all the time, he was saying the words of Tehillim. Shemtev ran to this Jew and he says, let me ask you, if you knew that the merit of your Tehillim, you can save a whole town, a whole town of Jews, would you give it away to save them? He says, Rebbe, if I have any merit, I'm glad to give it all away to help my brothers and sisters, help my fellow Jews. And the decree was averted. Shemtev loved the simple Jew because the simple Jew prayer was so moving and so sincere because whatever the Jew, the simple Jew did was 100%. The great rabbi, mystic, and scholar, the genius, even if he does 80%, it's very impressive because he's brilliant. He has tremendous abilities and talents. He's brilliant. But who says it's giving 100%? It's not 100%. The simple Jew is like a child. child. Whatever a child does is 100%. He's sincere. They're genuine. There's no ears, there's no, there's no artificial, there's nothing artificial, it's just real. There's no guile, there's no cleverness, sophisticated, it's just genuine, authentic, real, wholehearted. And that's what Hashem loves, because Hashem is authentic, Hashem is 100%, Hashem is absolute. So when you're giving your absolute self, Hashem is so moved that He responds to your prayers physically. Miracles happen, things happen. So the tzaddik, was able to serve Hashem at such a level. Of course, his prayer, even if it's purely spiritual, but it's his whole being. It's not just his whole ego, his whole essence, his whole I, his whole being. Is, he's giving over to Hashem, 100%. So of course Hashem responds. We're not talking about that. We're not talking about anyone who's on that level. That's a whole different level. It's a whole different 
quality of existence, of being. It's, but we're talking about 99.9% of us, the rest of us. In order for us to affect anything in the physical world, to draw down godliness in the physical world, it's only when it comes from an arousal from below, when we do something physical, we do a physical mitzvah with a physical object, with our physical body and organs, and when we move our lips and say the words of prayer, we have the power to elevate and to evoke a response that will draw down this godliness and come full circle and draw down Hashem's infinite light, a new surge of energy into this world, and also to protect and to guard and to make sure this energy only flows towards holiness and nothing is siphoned off to uh, the negative side. This class is part of the Lessons in Tanya project. More classes available at LessonsInTanya.com.